My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. thread I continue my reading and reflecting on the novel that I wrote for young people 10 years ago. And we've been following along the two characters that I have introduced in the novel and we deepened a little bit our, my understanding of the character of Jules when I was exploring her last time as someone who had come with a lineage of skills in craft and survival in a way, and particularly in medicine, that all came into being in the last part of the chapter where she finds Rowan and is able to figure out how to get across a river and get him out of the river and start to try to heal him after his freezing shock time in the river. And so, as I've mentioned, I also am trying to explore that through a kind of realistic magic in the world, through the lens of how people might have perceived the world around them in our earlier times as being deeply connected to everything and using a type of mysticism and imagery and dream world and other world understanding to help make sense of perceptions and gut intelligence and heart intelligence and sensory perception and ungated sensory perception. And that's something that I wanted to explore as something for us to reclaim and regenerate in ourselves. So that is where I go on and I'll read from there. He was in a misty wood sunlight filtered through and there was a smell. He wasn't sure of what but it seemed to make the mist clear in places. Someone was calling him, a girl, but he couldn't see her. He wanted to follow her voice, but there was something behind him, pulling him, holding him. He tried to turn to see what it was, but his head wouldn't move. Parts of his body glowed in the mist. 
he could feel their heat. When he looked down, his wrists glowed back at him. The mist swirled, and he heard a whisper behind him. You're not strong enough. Come, thus rest. Sleep. He felt himself slipping. Suddenly, a huge owl flew out of the mist. Follow me, it seemed to screech, and the weight behind him eased just enough for him to move. Owl flew in front of him, and he tried to follow. His limbs felt cold and sluggish, but warmth was creeping into them from different parts of his body. Jules woke in a fright. The fire had burned low. Then she'd heard the sound again, a screech in the woods. That's what had woken her. She recognised it, the barn oil. She tried to clear her head. She'd been dreaming of a woods and she'd seen him. She crawled over to the boy. His breathing didn't sound good. It was erratic and slowing. And then it stopped. She cried out and grabbed him, rolling him over as she did so. She bunched up a part of the blanket and tilted his head back, and then leaning forward she put her mouth over his and started respiration sequences. She became lost in the process, in the rhythm. Her mind drifted. He'd stumbled and fell. He lay in the mist. He felt calm and happy to stop trying to follow the owl. It had returned to him and stood at his side, its face blurred, looking at times like through it he could see a girl. Which way do you want to go? It spoke softly. I can guide you, but you must choose the direction. Is there somewhere I can rest? He almost begged. His chest felt tight. Yes. Who's the girl I keep seeing, he asked. For a moment, with some energy. She's your soulmate. Do you want to speak with her? Yes. Listen carefully. The girl's spirit will speak with you now, but you may not remember this if you meet her on the other side. Time stood still. Then she was there. They smiled at each other and laughed, recognizing they were one and the same, part of a whole. They started to talk, and it seemed they shared a lifetime of thoughts in moments. Then the owl interrupted. Well, where to? To her, he almost shouted. Yes, come to me. We can be together again, she pleaded. Are you sure? It will be painful, the owl cautioned. 
Yes. Jules was beginning to get desperate when he spluttered and she stopped. He coughed and his eyes popped open. She eased him back onto his side and made him comfortable. He stared at her and squirmed. His body was on fire in places and numb elsewhere. He stared at her. His chest hurt. His lungs burned and heart pounded. His face contorted in pain, but he couldn't take his eyes off the girl. Jules watched him, watching her, as she moved to get the fire going again. His breathing was stabilizing, she noted with relief. She put her small water pot on once more, and this time dropped in some willow and birch bark and some mint. After a time, she lifted it off again and strained it into her little mug and let it cool. Then she brought it to him and encouraged him to sip it slowly. She dropped in a little burdock tincture, an elder tincture. Tried again. He was trying not to cry out. He felt awful. Nausea came in waves, but the liquid she helped him to drink was soothing. He wanted to cry, this time with the beginning of relief. The warmth spread throughout him, and slowly he felt a little less sick, and the pain seemed to dull. His body relaxed, and he slipped into a gentle sleep. When he next awoke, it was fully light. He stretched and sat up, feeling a bit woozy and achy, but more alert. He looked around and saw there was a small pot on the fire in front of him and a mug to the side. He gingerly wrapped the pot handle in his sleeve and strained off the warm liquid into the mug. He sipped cautiously. There was no sign of the girl. The sun shone on him and he saw the river a little way off. A shudder passed through him as he began to remember. The lads that had followed him, the boat he'd been standing in when they came. But after that, nothing. Until now, except the girl. He didn't even know her name. She'd saved his life, he was sure. But how? And when? How long? Where was he? And the horse? And the wagon? Were they gone? He thought of his parents with a sudden pang. Before he'd set off, he'd never really thought about what his journey would mean to them. He knew they might worry, but he was so confident that it was no big deal. They kept trying to make it bigger. This manhood initiation thing, all the preparation and training. He'd gone along with it. He didn't expect any trouble. 
They told him that it was important he face his fears and come back feeling self-reliant. They had a huge, long rationale about how before the collapses young men had lost any sense of themselves. They'd taken to creating their own rituals without any guidance or training from elders. They'd only gangs and clubs. They'd been called to face fear when attracted to extreme sports that got more and more dangerous. Boy racing back in the day when individuals could own cars. But there was also a steep increase in near-death experiences, things that went wrong, and high rates of suicide. Back then, the lost purpose of the acts of quest for meaning, direction, inner strength, knowledge. His parents tried to tell him that this was the new answer. It was inspired by even older ways that people had looked back to the ancients and their rites of passage and given them a modern take, a boy's journey making his first way in the world that could help him make a successful passage into adulthood, confident and not needing to continually test himself because he'd know he could make it. At the time, Rowan had thought they were trying to convince themselves more than him. Practice was still relatively new. He thought the trip was fine. He was excited by the prospect of his adventure. But he was sure the depth and meaning his parents were on about was being overly dramatic. Now he wasn't so sure. He felt a sense of shock that things could have gone so badly wrong. He felt it in his gut, clear in awareness, that he'd been very near death. Fear flushed through him and he shivered. Jules approached from the copse, carrying a pile of wood. You're cold. They were the first words since he was fully awake. It seemed strange even to Jules to hear her voice after days of so little talk. He nodded and she moved the pot and started to pile more wood on the fire. How are you feeling? Otherwise, you drank the infusion? She nodded to the mug. Yes, thank you. He too felt speech awkward and his throat rasped. A silence fell between them for a moment. Then they both spoke. Where did what's in the... They smiled at each other for the first time, shyly at first. You go, Jules said. No, go ahead, he countered. Okay. She made herself comfortable by the fire. Do you know what happened to you? Where did you come from? I'm from New Dublin. I was on a trading journey. I was attacked by two boys. They came at me just as I was testing a little boat I'd found tied up in the river. I think one of them hit me with an oar. I'd seen them some days back in a small village. They were interested in the electronic bits I was trading, but they didn't have anything to offer that I wanted. They weren't very happy. We exchanged a few curses. I never thought they'd come after me, especially not so far from where I met them. 
He paused, remembering. He knew he sounded scared and struggled to hide that from her. The fear sat in his gut like a lead weight. You're not a traitor, though, she checked. He was surprised by his reluctance to explain. In some ways, he felt he could reveal everything to her, all his innermost thoughts and feelings. But that was ridiculous. They were strangers, weren't they? He had no idea whether the dim but deep dream where they'd met, a dream he'd barely acknowledged to himself, was real or remembered by her. No, I'm not a traitor. But you have one of their wagons, she continued to probe him. You're a passage boy? He wasn't sure if he liked or hated her directness. Yeah, I, I borrowed the wagon for this journey. But now she didn't push. Oh, was all she said. It seemed it was his turn. Can you tell me how you found me and what else happened? I don't remember after the boys ambushed me, he asked, again trying to keep a note of de desperation out of his voice. I found your wagon. She was leaving something out, as if she was starting halfway through a story. He was sure, but he was also too unsure of himself to ask more. I slept underneath it two nights ago, and those lads came back. They must have run off after they hit you scared of discovery. Maybe you cried or out or something. They'd waited till after dark, in any case. They were rummaging about in the wagon. They were afraid they'd killed you. I made noises and banged from under the wagon, and they took fright and legged it off the Egypts. She was half laughing now and he noticed her eyes, grey-green, shining with a childlike mischief, quite different from the reserve and seriousness of her earlier care. He smiled. Good on you, he commented. Yeah, well, I knew something had happened to you. I looked down by the river and saw signs of something, so I got hitched to your horse and moved down river before they came back. Then yesterday I saw the boat and got across to you. You were lying almost completely covered by water. Your head on a seat was all that stopped you from being completely submerged. Why the ragpits hadn't coped you, I've no notion. Coped? He interrupted. Yeah, you know, capsized the boat. Oh, right. He was shivering again. He could have died. His poor parents might never have known what had happened. He felt vulnerable and small. You're still cold, she said, noticing. Hold on a sec. Before he could object, she was behind him, rearranging the blanket. But then, wrapping her arms around him, he felt her warmth flow into him. It felt so right, and at the same time, so embarrassing. He must have felt something similar, because he started talking faster now and with no gaps for breath. Anyway, I think you've had hyperthermia, and so I had to warm you up, and 
But she didn't go into shock, but your breathing stopped and I had to respirate for you. My mother's a folk herbalist and I'm trained, so I knew some things to do. But you gave me a fright I don't mind telling you. I'd like to get you to her as soon as we can. I have to be back tomorrow before noon any rate, or there'll be hell to pay. So I hope you're strong enough to get across the river. The wagon's on the other side. She stopped and stepped back. Thanks, he mumbled. She wouldn't look him in the eye, and he avoided her gaze for a few minutes. Well, I think I can move now. Rowan eased himself up to kneeling, then slowly stood. He felt very unsteady, but tried not to show it. She looked relieved. She handed him a jumper and trousers and turned away. When he was ready, she took the blanket from him. Get used to standing for a while. I'll just pack up. She bustled about, packing her small pack and carefully putting out the fire and covering the ground with wet moss. It was harder to see where they had been at all when she was done. I checked the boat. It's completely banjexed underneath, so you'll have to cross back the way I came. It's up there. She indicated the steep hill up the side of the river. He tried to shrug and imply that it was grand, but he knew he wasn't hiding his anxiety well. Moving like an old man, he followed her lead. She handed him a hazel rod and he leaned heavily on it as he slipped on muddy patches. He felt as if he was climbing the Sugarloaf, one of his dad's favourite annual walks instead of this small bank. But eventually, after more stumbles and stops for breath, or to take a bit of ramble off his jumper, he made it. He was sweating and his breath was sore in his chest. Well, I'm warm now, he attempted levity. They made their way to the edge of the river, to Jules's crude rope and log bridge. But Rowan was impressed. This girl a lot more than any of his training had taught him. Wait here. She was across in a confident flash and back with a large log in a few minutes. She placed it next to the one already bridging the two rocks and she went back and forth, tying it to the other ones at both ends. When she was satisfied, she came for him. He was nervous and she had to walk slowly with him out over the water. He moved on alone as she coaxed. I can't go over with you. It's not strong enough for both of us at the same time. She made it look so easy. Suddenly, he looked into the fast-flowing river below and froze. He started to shake. He was terrified and immediately furious at his terror. He could hear her asking, was he all right? He tried to answer and choked as tears of humiliation and fear came out with his angry reply, No, I'm fucking not. Then she was behind him again. He felt her strength and her warmth steady him, but he also felt the logs bending with their combined weight. Now, let's move it before we both end up in there, she scolded. It was enough. He moved on, and they covered the short distance in an instant. He turned and looked at what they had crossed. It was tiny, 
and the river wasn't even that deep or fast. He felt like a fool. She left him to himself for a moment and cut down as much rope as she could and shouldered her pack. This way. She left him and walked out onto the road. He followed her slowly, but she knew he needed some time to regain some sense of his own ability after what had happened on the bridge. These things seemed instinctive to her. Jules went ahead down the track, trying not to look back and check on him. It took a while, but by the time he got down, she had the horse rehitched to the wagon and acted like he was already really well able. He looked like he was about to collapse. I feel like I've walked a hundred miles. Your body's been through a lot. I think it might even have been in a sort of stasis in the water. That can happen to people. Here, let me help you into a wagon. You can sleep in there. He was too tired to resist, and even his embarrassment was overwhelmed by exhaustion. She got him into the press bed and pulled out blankets to cover him. He closed his eyes, grateful from the break and having to talk or look at her. Jules directed the horse back up the hill, and once they were on more level ground, she urged it on at a steady but quick pace. She had a deadline to keep. So that kind of covers Jules and Rowan's first meeting and their different perspectives on the situation. Rowan realizing his lack of resilience and skill and being out in the world and thinking about the way I imagine the parents being at trying as urban descendants, post-times of collapse, of thinking about what could help the young people to find more resilience and continue to build skills that they've been rekindling and regenerating themselves. And then Jules, the much more confident and competent lineage of having had those skills in a much less interrupted way. And also that hint of the mysticism of sensing some kind of inner knowing and inner connection on first meeting with each other that I think is possible in the world as a kind of magic, as a kind of way that we tune in to things in the world, whether that be a plant that is kind of speaking to us and telling us something that is at a level of sensory perception that something is good for us. I think that that's the same and possible for human beings to sense connection and something that's calling you into a relationship with someone at a particular moment in your life. So that's the sense that I wanted to explore and develop in the meet first meeting of these two young characters. And yeah, Jules is in a hurry now to get back to her ceremony that's pending and that will come up in the next chapter. <laughs>